we believe and agree what is ahead for us is resurrection, life, and glory, even as we face threat, fear, and the pain of death. And to those things, all Christians say, amen. You're listening to a sermon series titled Apostles' Creed, preached at Shoreline Church. For more audio and theological content, please visit thisisshoreline.com. Who would have thought the word amen would be controversial? But here we are today with a sermon titled Amen. And we're concluding our series examining the Apostles' Creed. And we're going to look today at the last six statements of belief that the creed affirms. So let's begin. We're going to look at them on the screen and jump right in. This is what we're going to look at today. Again, if you're um, new to this series, we're not studying the Apostles' Creed. We're reading it, examining it, and then studying the scriptures, which alone are inspired by God. Uh, to see what the creed is pointing to in the Bible, so then we can unpack the Bible, which is the Word of God. So the creed says, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. And all of God's people who agree with that say, Amen. So six statements on the screen in the creed, 28 words, and yet there is so much for us to dive into biblically. Uh, We are uh, looking at the Apostles' Creed, and we've learned that the Apostles didn't actually write the Apostles' Creed, but this was a summary of what the Apostles did believe and did teach, and it is essential to Christian faith. Uh, The Apostles' Creed is a summary, a great summary, in fact, the foundational summary of Christian faith. And so we've been looking at this for the last few weeks. We've looked at, in the last two weeks, God the Father and God the Son. And we've looked at both the Almighty Creator as well as our Savior last week who died, was buried, and who rose again for our sins. So today, we're going to pick up with the third person of the Trinity. And the Creed, as you see, simply says, I believe in the Holy Spirit. The question is, what exactly are we to believe? The Creed does not say. We just would say as Christians, we believe in the Holy Spirit. Uh, And the creed doesn't tell us exactly what to believe, and for that we need to consult the scriptures. Now, most Christians would say, or every Christian would say, well, I agree with the Apostles' Creed that the Holy Spirit exists. But many Christians would say, I'm just not sure exactly what it is that the Holy Spirit does. In fact, some people avoid the doctrine of the Holy Spirit altogether. Here's what Albert Moeller said in uh, his book, The Apostles' Creed. He said, In some evangelical circles, the Holy Spirit has faded into the background of our theological interests, leaving us with an anemic view of the Spirit and subsequently a deficient relationship with the third member of the Trinity. Or I would add to that, some people overemphasize the work of the Holy Spirit uh, and things become, well, interesting. So what are we to believe about the Spirit? Um, This is a doctrine that we would summarize as we call it pneumatology. Just to impress you with that word, pneumatology is the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. So jot that down. It is hard to spell. Um, We find one of the best sections of scripture to give us a doctrine of the Holy Spirit in John chapters 14 and 16. So I'd love for you to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 14. Now I warned you guys in this series, we're going to be 
having our Bibles ready. When I was an eighth grade Bible teacher, I said, have your swords drawn. So I would say that to us, have your Bibles at the ready, because we're going to turn to a few passages. But look with me at John 14, starting in verse 16. These, of course, are the words of Jesus to his closest disciples uh, when he was about to be betrayed and crucified. It says in John 14, and I will ask the Father, And he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. So I want to give us three ideas today about the Holy Spirit, what we should believe, uh, just a real basic idea of pneumatology. So if you're taking notes, Jesus just explained this to us, and I'd love for you to jot these down. Number one, the Holy Spirit is a person. Notice with me that Jesus does not say the spirit of truth is an it. He uses the personal pronoun he and him. Jesus says, you know him for he dwells with you and he will be in you. Uh, The Holy Spirit is a person. He uses a personal pronoun he. We would not describe our spouses as an it. Well, we could if we want to sleep on the couch. We would say, uh, you know, it. So I wouldn't say, hey, do you guys want to go to lunch afterwards, after church? Let me check with my wife, Jen, and see what it says. If I did that, uh, I'd be going to lunch alone with you guys. Uh, the Holy Spirit is not an impersonal wind. And I know there's translations that use the word ghost. And so we kind of picture this ethereal, um, immaterial, and lacking personality, a force that you can channel as a Jedi um, with enough concentration. That's not the right idea scripturally. The scriptures tell us, a couple of verses, and I won't put them on the screen, but the scriptures tell us the Holy Spirit can be sinned against, Isaiah 63.10. The Holy Spirit can be grieved, uh, Ephesians 4.30. 1 Corinthians 12 tells us the Holy Spirit has a will, and Acts 5.3 tells us the Holy Spirit can be lied to. Now, you can't grieve or lie to an it, In other words, you you can't sin against an impersonal thing. No one has ever sinned against their toaster. Their toaster's in the house, and they said, you know what, I'm sorry, toaster, I'm going to cheat on you by going to Panera, and I'm going to get a cinnamon raisin bagel, because those cinnamon bagels there are crazy good. Um, And so you're not sinning against your your, uh, toaster by having, you know, Panera outside of the home. But countless men have sinned against their wives by committing adultery. So the Holy Spirit is a person. Secondly, though, I want you to know this about the Holy Spirit. The Spirit, the Holy Spirit is God, or we could say Yahweh. Uh, In fact, I just mentioned Acts chapter 5. Note what happens in that um, passage of Scripture. Acts chapter 5, when Ananias and Sapphira sinned, Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you've contrived this deed in your heart? Notice here, you've not lied to man, but to God. Here, he mentions the Holy Spirit, he mentions God. So we um, can deduce the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of God. I love what Gregory of Nazianza says. He says, the deity of the Holy Spirit ought to be clearly recognized in Scripture. Look at these facts. Christ is born but the Spirit is his forerunner. Christ is baptized, the Spirit bears witness. Christ is tempted, the Spirit leads him up. Christ ascends, the Spirit takes his place. 
What great things are there in the character of God which are not found in the Spirit? So the Spirit of God is God. Thirdly, though, I'd love for you to jot this down. The Holy Spirit is a distinct and co-equal person of the Trinity. So because of that, the Scriptures tell us a few things about the role of the Holy Spirit uh, as co-equal and yet distinct a member of the Godhead. Note with me on the screen these different um, attributes of where the Spirit was at work. First of all, the Spirit was involved in creation. The Spirit was involved in the incarnation. The Holy Spirit will overshadow you, Mary. Uh, The Holy Spirit was involved in your salvation. Yes, Christ did the finished work, but the Spirit is the one who illuminates Christ and who regenerates the unbeliever. The Holy Spirit is involved in the resurrection, and the Holy Spirit is also, as we just saw in Acts 5, involved in judgment. Now, the Holy Spirit may get less of our attention or understanding or way too much of our attention in our gatherings, but that doesn't diminish the equality of the Holy Spirit within the Godhead. So look with me, you're in John 14, turn a page or two or swipe over to John 16. Again, same conversation that Jesus is having with his beloved. Look at verse 12 of John 16. Jesus said, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine, therefore I said he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So if you're ever wondering what exactly does the Spirit of God do, though he is co-equal with the Father and Son and distinct, the Holy Spirit is the one who regenerates and guides the unbeliever into the family of God and guides us into all truth. The Spirit doesn't speak on his own authority. He is one who relays the truth. And the Holy Spirit, as you notice what Jesus just said, he's ever illuminating the work of the Son. He's not illuminating himself. He's like the light shining onto the billboard to display the glory of Christ and to declare the Logos to the church. So the Spirit of God, for us, is the one who's instructing us. So every time we come to a Sunday gathering, when I'm over here preparing my heart and worship and singing along with you, I'm asking, Holy Spirit, I believe in your work. Will you be the, uh, the one who teaches? Will you be the one who brings application? I don't want people to be impressed with oratory skill. I want you to use a broken body and a broken tongue and use this for your glory. So the Spirit is the one who instructs us. The Spirit guides and comforts the church. He's the one who restrains and convicts us. He's the one who empowers and equips us. And he's the one who sanctifies us because he is the one who is known as the Holy Spirit. He's constantly and consistently doing a work of renewal and sanctification in each and every Christian's life. So when we say those words, I believe in the Holy Spirit, we could maybe insert the little clause, I believe in what the Bible teaches about the Holy Spirit. So let's look, and it's appropriate that you guys are amening that because um, that is the title of the sermon. So amen. Let's look at the next phrase in the creed. And I know you've been waiting for this one. I know it. You've been waiting. You've been watching the video. And every time this part gets to the video, I see some eyebrows going up, some people nudging each other. What church are we at right now, Bob? And so um, the Holy Catholic Church. This is uh, perhaps the most controversial or confusing word in the entire creed. And immediately, 
And people are thinking, well, hold on, time out. <clears throat> I looked this church up online, and I'm pretty sure this is not a Catholic church. This is a Protestant church. Um, let me explain what this does not mean, okay? When we say we believe in the Holy Catholic Church, uh, it does not mean we believe in Roman Catholicism, okay? Uh, so you, don't worry, you're not going to have to start praying the rosary to Mary. Uh, I'm not going to change my title from pastor, pilgrim, to priest. Actually, that does have a nice ring to it. I don't know. Priest, pilgrim, the priest. Don't start any Instagram accounts, please. Don't do that. <clears throat> the word Catholic here means universal. Okay? It means whole. Uh, it means, and what we're saying is, I believe in the true universal body of believers. So it goes along with the next statement, which is, I believe in the communion of saints. Now, to really understand what the Bible says about the church, we already went through our uh, series at the end of the fall last year uh, called Together. We went through 1 Corinthians uh, 12 through 15. Um, but I want to turn to a passage that explains a little bit about who we are as a church. So would you please turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. Just turn a bit to the right. Ephesians chapter 2. Now, your Bible should have most of Ephesians marked up, but Ephesians 2 is a fantastic, powerful passage. And starting in verse 19, we have a picture of what we are no longer and what we now are. So there's a past tense identity, and there's a new identity. So look with me in Ephesians 2, 19, explaining what it means to be the Holy Catholic Church or have the communion of saints. Paul says this to the church in Ephesus. He says in verse 19, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. My friend Shane, who's here, wrote a great article on the Gospel Forum that said, hey, a lot of people say church isn't a building. He goes, actually, it is. It is a building. If you look here, it says we are the structure. We are the building of God. I love that. And so notice what Paul is saying. You are no longer, what are you no longer? You're no longer strangers or aliens. You're no longer on the outside seeking citizenship. So you used to be on the outside. You who are Gentiles were kind of on the outside. You were strangers. You were aliens. You wanted citizenship. But now, because of the work of Christ, Gentile and Jew are made into one body. We're brought into the household of God. So because of the regenerative work of the Holy Spirit, who's made us alive, made us new creations, we as Christians, you as a Christian, are transformed from stranger into saint. You are transformed from alien, and that doesn't have anything to do with UFOs. Uh, you're transformed from someone who was an outsider to now citizen. We, you, are now members of God's household, the church. So all true Christians are already inaugurated members of what we would call the Holy Catholic Church. Now, I get it. The word Catholic usually in our minds means Roman Catholic. But don't forget, the Apostles' Creed was written at least a thousand years before the Protestant Reformation. So it makes no sense to refer to Catholic or Protestant here in the creed. The idea is just one church. I believe in one church. Now, you might not. You might kind of bristle at that idea. You might say, listen, when I went to find this church, there are 
within like three square miles. There are Lutherans, Episcopalians, there are Presbyterians, there's Baptists, there's non-denominationalists. I searched for church and I came up with names like Good Life or Grace or Cornerstone or Covenant or local things that have something to do with water like harbor or bay or river, oasis, something about a shore. There's a church with shore. Oh yeah, South Shore. Uh, And so you searched for the church and you're thinking uh, that, you know, I believe that we're all supposed to be one, one exact uh, institution. Uh, maybe you have that view. Let's just scrap every local church and let's find a pastor to oversee every single believer in this area. And we're not saying that. We're not saying we believe in institutional unity because that's unrealistic. Uh, we would say there's denominations and we don't like those disagreements where we get divisive and think we're better than others, but we do see local expressions Um, And each of those local expressions are going to have some different beliefs on secondary issues. And so even though we don't see institutional unity, all true Christians do enjoy spiritual unity. And so we believe that. We believe that there is one uh, united, ultimate spiritual body. But not only that, he says, and with that is the communion of saints. Now, again, this is not a reference to what we do once a month, taking the Lord's, partaking of the Lord's Supper which along with baptism is one of those two sacraments that we recognize as part of a covenant community of Christ followers. When we think of the word communion, we're thinking I'm communing with Jesus, with the Father, because of Christ's finished work. But I want you to zoom out from maybe the bread and the cup of communion. I want you to see the bigger, grander vision of that word. We think about communion and what we share together as saints. What we're saying here is that God's people, are not just isolated individuals who all are segregated and come to saving faith all by themselves and just live a segregated life at home and look online to find a good sermon video to watch and download a Spotify worship playlist and then, you know, try to pass the smell test and call that church. That is not what it means to be the church or be a part of the church. Um, And so we're a part of and we have fellowship we have unity with all of God's people. Here's what Albert Moeller said about where we are today in the church. He says, the stereotypical American church has devolved into a voluntary association, no different from a local club or service organization. American ecclesiology, that just means the, the study of the church, often capitulates to a spiritual cafeteria designed to meet preferential wants rather than gather together the people of God for Christ-exalting community and worship. The American church has been relegated to a consumer good rather than the body of the risen king of the universe. You see, the church today, we are in a sad state. And I believe, as an optimist, I look at any situation, I tend to find the, the maybe the where's God's glory scene? Let's look optimistically. Uh, I look at 2020 and I say, man, much has been done by God's spirit to prune the church. Uh, So look what Paul told the Corinthians about this idea of being uh, with the communion of the saints. He says, for just as the body is one, has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Jews are Greeks, slaves are free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. You see, the communion of the saints is simply a reality that we now uh, have that exists as a result of God's redemptive work in history. And incidentally, the sacrament we call communion or the Lord's Supper 
It actually reminds us of that reality. We're all coming together to partake of the same cup, the same bread. And so what we share together as saints is not just that we attend a gathering on Sunday morning. It's what we have and what we are. It's so much deeper and grander and greater than just attending a local gathering. D.A. Carson captures the essence of this. He says, local churches, and this is how we should see ourselves. He says, they should see themselves as outcroppings of heaven, analogies of the Jerusalem that is above. Indeed, colonies of the new Jerusalem, providing on earth a corporate and visible expression of the glorious freedom of the children of God. And I'm so thankful that we now have covenant community. Uh, once a quarter, we invite people to say, yes, I'm a follower of Christ. I'm a member of Christ's church, and I want to be a visible representative of his uh, church here at Shoreline. So we're excited about that, and we'll have another sign-up for our Shoreline Explored class um, in a few weeks. So I believe in the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, but notice what comes next. I believe in the forgiveness of sins. Now, I got to be honest, I was tempted to skip this in the study preparation. Like, yeah, it's important, we get it, but we've talked about that. Everybody understands that your sins are forgiven. But that's like, do we? Do we really understand this? Christians believe and proclaim that in Christ, indeed only in Christ, our sins have been forgiven. Now, you're still in Ephesians 2. Turn left with me to Ephesians chapter 1. Look at what we have in Christ. And I really richly encourage you to meditate often on Ephesians chapter 1. Notice verse 7. Paul says, this is what we have in Christ. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. Wow. See, because of the cross of Jesus Christ, you and I, who by the Spirit of God have communion with the saints, we're all one church, because of the work of Christ, we have been forgiven of an insurmountable, incalculable debt. You and I have the forgiveness of sins. And if there's anything that will excite me, it's to realize my sins have been paid for, they're forgiven. I think about what Spurgeon said when he considered his own salvation. Here's what he said. Maybe you can relate to this, I certainly can. He says, I was years and years upon the brink of hell. I was unhappy. I was desponding. I was despairing. I dreamed of hell. My life was full of sorrow and wretchedness, believing that I was lost. But oh, the blessed gospel of the God of, gra of grace came to me, and with it a sovereign word, deliver him. And I, who was but a minute before, as wretched as a soul could be, could have danced. And as the snow fell on my road home from the little house of prayer, I thought every snowflake talked with me and told me of the pardon I had found. For I was white as the driven snow through the grace of God. Amen. See, that's what you and I have. We have the forgiveness of sins. Now, up until this point in the creed, we've looked at the work of our triune God, the glorious salvific work of God the Son, the rule and reign as well as the return of Christ. And we've looked at the identity of the church who's been made alive by the Spirit of God. But we finally get to a theological statement about humanity, about us, about you and I. What do Christians believe about mankind? And the answer is, it's, it's maybe different than we thought. Uh, because we see the forgiveness of sins, just four words in the creed, we have to understand three ideas about who we are. So I'd love for you to jot these down. These are really important in today's day and age. 
Uh, number one, because we look at us as those needing forgiveness, we have to realize that humans are born with a sinful nature and we are incapable of union with God. Some people would say, well, hold on. I think we're generally good people. I'm a good person. I, I, I was not born with a nature that was evil, but was bent towards loving and serving my neighbor. I would say, okay, well, I, uh, let's go back and zoom back to when you were two years old and you were a, a terrible two, right? Sinner. Um, there's a false teaching that crept up in the fifth century known as Pelagianism that kind of believes we don't have original sin. But according to the creed, what we want to know about people and need to know about people is that we are sinners. We need forgiveness. So number two, because of that, Christians are different. We have repented of our sin. Now, this might seem oversimplistic, and um, I actually want to spend a little bit of time on this. Um, I wonder how someone can say, I'm a born-again Christian, and I trust Christ, but I have not repented. In fact, you would have to play origami with the scriptures or have an eraser handy to take out the dozens and dozens of references in the New Testament where we're actually commanded to repent. And some would say, well, that's legalism. Well, actually, Jesus told us flat out, repent. In fact, the, the Greek word for repentance uh, that's used in the New Testament is a Greek word called metanoia. And metanoia just simply means to change your mind. The word noia there. Uh, is a word that means mind. You've heard of paranoia. Some of you uh, understand the word paranoia. I think we have a meme that demonstrates that. It doesn't matter if I'm paranoid, they're still after me, right? You know what paranoia is. Paranoia is a disorder of the mind. No matter what, your mind is kind of disordered. So metanoia means I've changed my mind. Well, what have you changed your mind about as a Christian? Well, you've changed your mind about sin. John the Baptist, his sermon was repent for the kingdom of, of heaven is at hand. And so he uses that word, repent, metanoia, change your mind. And then a few verses later, Matthew says that those who were baptized by John, they confessed their sins. So they had a change of mind about their sin. You would say as a Christian, my sin is no longer fashionable. It's no longer fun. It's destructive. And so to repent is to change your mind about sin. But not only that, it's to change your mind about the gospel. Here's what Mark uh, captures uh, Jesus saying. It says, now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So we change our mind about sin and we change our mind about the good news of the gospel. So we no longer believe it's a myth, it's folklore, it's silly. No, we embrace it as our only means of salvation. So rather than misunderstand or mock it, we treasure and cherish the gospel. Not only that, we change our mind about our own righteous deeds, or I would quote, our righteous deeds. Hebrews 6.1 speaks about repentance from dead works. So we change our mind about thinking, I'm a good person. I contribute to my salvation. And we come to a place in repentance where we acknowledge, no, I'm wretched. I'm poor. I'm blind. I'm naked. I'm pitiful. I'm desperate for grace. So Christians have repented of their sin. They've repented of their view of the gospel. They've repented of uh, their own works. And that is one reason why we as a church must reject someone who says, I'm a Christian, but I'm in a gay or lesbian sexual relationship. That is Christianity without repentance. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 6, and I know this isn't popular, never has been. Uh, he says, do you not know the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? 
Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, the Greek word's porneia, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, greedy, drunkards, revilers, swindlers. None of them will inherit the kingdom of God, and such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Are you catching what Paul is saying here? Here's what he's saying, church. Don't miss this. You cannot be an unrepentant Christian porn addict. You cannot be an unrepentant Christian idolater. You cannot be an unrepentant Christian adulterer. And you cannot be an unrepentant Christian homosexual. There's no such thing as a Christian thief, a greedy Christian, a Christian drunkard, a Christian reviler, a Christian swindler. Those don't go together. One of those has to be put to death. You must put to death homosexuality, same-sex attraction. You must put to death adultery. You must put to death immorality and allow the gospel to take root. And so repentance is not popular today. It never has been. It's controversial. It's offensive. And it's troubling. But to be a Christian means, no, I've repented. I've turned from my sin. I'm struggling against it, not going with it. Uh, and I'm seeking and trusting Christ for forgiveness. But thirdly, when we talk about the forgiveness of sins, that means that we have no other means of forgiveness. There is no other means except the work of Christ. It's only through Christ that we have the forgiveness of sin. So we have to discount and eliminate self-righteous effort. We need to eliminate zeal. We need to eliminate passion, emotion, or fervency. Today, your last name doesn't help you, and your net worth is not going to qualify you. It doesn't matter who you know or how spiritual you claim you are. Forgiveness is found only through the finished work of Christ. And so just four words in the creed, the forgiveness of sins. We realize I am, as mankind, desperately sinful, and God's judgment is looming. And yet, in his grace... God has provided a means to placate his wrath. Amazing, right? So there's two more statements in the creed, and we'll move a little faster. These both refer to future events. We just studied this in our series, Kingdom Come. But notice with me on the screen, I believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. Amen. Uh, we can all expect, uh, and every Christian can await um, the same destiny. Uh, when we pass from this life into death. And so we can expect and anticipate two things for every Christian. We can anticipate the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. Uh, now, to understand this, go with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We just looked at this uh, beginning of this text last week. And so the idea at the beginning of the text is the gospel, 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 11, uh, but all of that is rooted in the truth of a resurrected body. And if there's no resurrection, we're in trouble. So note with me in verse 12, 1 Corinthians 15, 12. We're going to read this a little fast. But I would love for you to go back and read more in detail later. Here's what Paul says. If Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there's no resurrection of the dead? But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We, as those who preach the gospel, are even found to be misrepresented God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. Verse 16, for if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, think of the implications. If Christ is not resurrected, church, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. 
then those who have fallen asleep in Christ, those who have already died, they are perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now notice where our hope is. Our hope of resurrection is rooted in Christ's resurrection. So if Christ isn't risen, Paul's whole point is that what we're doing is it is aimless and hopeless. It's pointless. We should just, just just pack it up today. Well, we did have coffee, so that was redeemable. But but really, we should just go home and sleep in and watch Cobra Kai because that would be a better use of our time. We're still dead in our sins. We're, we're unforgiven. Everything I just said prior to this about being forgiven, it's, it's moot. Everyone who died before us, Grandpa, who was a great pillar of the faith, died with false hope, and he's lost forever. We deserve not the adoration of all people, but the pity of all people if Christ didn't rise again. So it's kind of a key and important doctrine to rest our entire faith upon. Um, look at verse 42. Skip down. Paul says, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. This is specifically um, not just cosmic resurrection, but our personal resurrection. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It's sown in dishonor. It's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness. It's raised in power. It's sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. I'd love for you to highlight that. Paul's use of the illustration of seeds is to demonstrate that seeds die and go into the ground, but there was enough DNA, if you would, within the seed to grow something that came from that seed into something new. What grows up after is alive and came from what died, but is gloriously better. So we can trust, Paul's point, we can trust that as Christ was raised, we too will sow this physical frail body into the ground and we're going to rise with new uh, bodies like him, spiritual bodies. Now, look at verse 50, and this is where it really gets powerful. Paul says, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. The trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, or you could say natural spiritual. This mortal body must put on immortality. When this happens, he says, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. And we'll be saying, oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? And he says in verse 56, 57, the sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, this is what we call the resurrection hope. We believe as Christians in the resurrection of the body. Doesn't that give you great hope? It's not, let me go back to the gym, get this body back in shape. Yeah, that's a good idea, but we can't root all of our hope in that. We root our hope in the resurrection spiritually, a spiritual body, um, but we also root our hope in the life everlasting. The creed reminds us that our eternity with God in heaven should be something we yearn for and something we long for. As Paul told the Colossians, he said, if then or since then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. We kind of just sang that. Take the world. Uh, God's enough. He says, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you've died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. 
And when Christ, who is your life, appears, you will also appear with him in glory. You see, the Christian anticipates with joy the life that will never end, a life of union with Christ, a life where every tear is wiped away from our eyes, a life where, get this, the presence of sin has been completely removed, a life of glory that our present sufferings can't compare with. And that is what we anticipate, the resurrection of the body and the life eternal or the life everlasting. And then we come to the final word of the creed. It's a word we employ at the end of every prayer. Uh, I didn't realize this, but now it's controversial. People are ending their prayers with amen and a women. Uh, It is not a gendered word. That's silliness. The word simply means so be it or I agree. The question is, church, do you? Do you agree? Because all Christians recite the Apostles' Creed and believe what the Bible truly says about every line, and only true Christians can affirm the words of this creed and say, I agree, or say, amen. In this creed, we agreed to who our triune God is. He's almighty, he's holy, he's creator, he's the Lord. We've agreed about who we are. We are sinful people in need of forgiveness. We've agreed that the glorious work of Christ at Calvary was on our behalf. We've agreed that the Bible teaches about the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, and we believe how the Spirit has united all believers into one spiritual body. We believe and agree what is ahead for us is resurrection, life, and glory, even as we face threat, fear, and the pain of death. And to those things, all Christians say, amen. Amen. Let's close with a thought from Albert Muller, and then we'll pray and worship. He says, have you ever thought of the Apostles' Creed as a prayer? We agree, amen. As the entire world knows what we believe, amen. As the church exalts in Christ, amen. As we believe, teach, and confess the faith that Christians throughout the ages past have confessed and will confess for infinite years to come, amen and amen. And all of us together said, amen. Amen. Father, thank you for... Uh, This incredible summary of the Christian faith, we could have spent many more weeks diving into uh, all the nuances of it. We've given kind of a bird's eye, aerial view, but we are thankful, Lord, for what unites us. There is so much out there that divides us. Uh, We don't want to focus on that, but what we have as one holy Catholic church, one unified body, and we thank you, Lord, for the work of your spirit today. Uh, I pray, Lord, as we conclude our service, that all glory would be given to Christ. That is the work of the Spirit, to illuminate and glorify uh, what Christ has done and who Christ is. So, Lord, would you do that in us today by your Spirit? We thank you. We love you. And as we begin this new year, Lord, help us to know what we believe, to grow in it, to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord, and to be effective in these dark days that need light. We are the light of the world. May we shine brightly in dark days. It's in Christ's name and for Christ's honor we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Shoreline Church meets every Sunday at 9 a.m. and 10.30 a.m. at the port on Lena Road. You can get more content and more information by visiting thisisshoreline.com. If you have any questions or any prayer needs, please don't hesitate to email us at info at God bless you.